Well, recently I saw an article I found really interesting. Um, Alberta physicians were raising the alarm about what they thought was a pretty dangerous trend fueled by that kind of misinformation, uh, one that could potentially cost lives. One doctor shared a story about a patient recently refusing to consent to a blood transfusion if it came from a donor who had received the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, ultimately, that patient didn't need one, but still, that same doctor posted about it online, received replies from others who had been in similar situations. Um, By the way, when uh, you donate blood, your vaccine status is not listed. And it's not just, um, you know, it's not just individual cases either. It also involves kids. Uh, Parents worried as well about these sorts of things. Dr. David Sidhu is an associate professor in the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary and the Southern Alberta Medical Lead for Transfusion and Transplant Medicine. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about this, because it does sound like perhaps the most extreme example one could think of when it comes to just how this kind of misinformation spreads. Uh, But what are you seeing and how common is it? I think that generally, you know, concern around blood and blood products has always been somewhat high. We've had uh, a long history, uh, particularly in the early 80s of HIV and hepatitis leading to the Kreber Commission. And so there's sensitivities around blood and blood products. Um, I think it's been heightened with, you know, some of this information that has been shared on social media and other sites as it relates to, you know, perhaps changes in people's genetic material somehow through this vaccine or other things that folks are concerned about. And so um, the concern from many of the patients that we see, some, you know, of course, are very legitimate, certainly parents um, who who want to know more about their the, the safety of the blood product. Um, particularly, we find in our bone marrow transplant patients, it's always a concern. And we We have that conversation with those parents and with those patients because we want to reassure them. Um, But I think overall, the the worry that we're seeing or the concern we're seeing um, is based on perhaps not the soundest of science. And when we try to have those conversations with patients, we want to make sure we're giving them the most accurate information possible to make these decisions as to whether to transfuse or not. I understand in those situations, it's very, I mean, you know this much better than I do. It's very stressful for patients. It's certainly stressful for parents of of children who are patients, no doubt. Um, And and obviously, they've gone out to try to do as much research as they can while this is happening. What do you do then to try to reason, or reason is maybe not the right word, but at least have that conversation with patients who may have ideas that you don't think are, are necessarily based on fact? Well, we have to remember that everyone's medical decision-making is ultimately their choice. You know, um, we, we, we cannot have a, a um, uh, uh, treatments forced on patients in, in any way. Uh, and, and so the best thing we can do in all of those circumstances typically is to, to just be open to having the conversations. We, we have, you know, the most accurate or the most current information available and we were willing to share that information and, and talk through it in detail with patients. Um, and the hope is, you know, once once they hear all of the facts or at least the, the current science, they're they're willing to to listen and um, and and perhaps uh, keep an open mind, uh, despite what they may have been hearing. And honestly, that's that's probably the best we can do. 
when it comes to um, dealing with patients who have these concerns. Yeah, where I mean, you must look around to try to figure out where these concerns come from. See where the you must ask them where they got the information. Uh, you'd have to. Where where is this information coming from? Do you think? It's true. It, you know, it is the first impulse to ask whether you know where 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 did they hear this? Or you know, sometimes yeah, I'm I'm curious myself to 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 to, to review the the information. Um, inevitably is different sources for different people um, or, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just social media or the internet. It, it can be conversations with friends and concerns they've seen. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, the, the idea that blood and blood products are, are, are potentially dangerous or could spread disease is not ultimately wrong. We are very careful in, in who we select to receive blood products and we typically don't provide transfusions lightly. Uh, honestly, it, it is in those circumstances of, of, of life and limb. And that is what my, my colleague was dealing with. The concern is that, you know, making these decisions ahead of these surgeries and other big procedures without all of the information available uh, can be detrimental because we don't have a lot of options if there is a significant bleed in a surgical operation um, and, and that patient has opted not to accept blood products. Uh, there's not much um, physicians can do in those very um, urgent situations. Yeah, I'm, that's, what I, that's where I was going with this. I mean, this could be a matter of life and death. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, you know, all those things coming together in that sort of a situation may, may not be particularly likely, but as you point out, it's not, it's not impossible that these things collide and you end up with a, with a, with a terrible situation in your hands. And the, the bigger issue for us, of course, is whenever folks ask, you know, it's not necessarily, I don't want blood from a individual who has been vaccinated. Um, necessarily or when we when we as you correctly pointed out at the at the, the top of this conversation that canadian blood services doesn't track uh, vaccination status for donors well then inevitably the next question is well then i want blood from uh this person that i know is not vaccinated and so that creates actually more dangers because now we have what we call directed donations and so this is a deviation from how blood is collected and how blood is stored for this particular person that needs to be quarantined and held separate in a separate inventory system. And every time we deviate from our, our standard operating procedures, there's always the potential for human error, the potential for mix-up and other additional issues. And so when that occurs, we're not just endangering, you know, potentially that patient, but a, a mix-up in blood could occur for another patient as well. And so these are, there's a bit of a, slippery slope when it comes to this. And we need folks to understand that um, it has more of an impact than just on, on their medical decision making. Broadly speaking, when you look at the history of, I mean, I remember back to the tainted blood scandal, anyone who was around in the 80s can't help but forget it. Um, you know, certainly, even when I lived in England, I remember coming back to Canada, not being able to donate blood because of BSE. And there were, you know, mm -hmm. the, the way of protecting the blood supply has become very, you know, it's become quite stringent over the over many years for for good reason. Um, but what is what is the reaction? I mean, what is the relationship between vaccination and blood donation? I never even thought about it, to be honest, until I read these articles. Well, honestly, most uh, 
most folks who are coming out to donate blood tend to, first they have to pass a, a donor questionnaire. Uh, and of course, part of that is exactly as you pointed out, questions around uh, travel to to potentially areas of, of endemic disease or, or being in England in the 80s when uh, when uh, the uh, bovine encephalopathy cases came out. And so many of our donors tend to be quite vigilant of their health. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. I would almost argue are more likely to be vaccinated, frankly, uh, than unvaccinated. Um now that 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 might be more anecdotal than than statistical, but I, I suspect it's probably accurate. So, I think you know the Canadian blood supply is 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 very safe. There's there are places in the world where where blood is is less safe, and there's concerns around the safety of blood, and that's where people tend to ask for specific individuals to donate for them. Um, but again, as I mentioned, that can lead to problems. And so we, we just need to reassure patients of the safety of the blood supply. There's no medical or scientific evidence currently to suggest there's any changes in people's blood or, or uh, blood antigens or, or genetics when it comes to COVID vaccines or RNA vaccines. That's not anything that's ever been scientifically documented. And so we, I, I think we just need to continue to reassure and, and, and follow the evidence. If, if something new comes out, you know, physicians will watch that and will, will, will take that into account. Um, if if this, this evidence changes, we will, of course, have to change the safety measures we take around blood and blood products. But as it stands today, the, the current science suggests it is safe. How has it been on the on the transfusion and transplant or the transplant side, really? And and how are you how are you making out now? So um, you know, it's important to remember that none of the transplant surgeries over the course of the pandemic were delayed. Uh, similarly, many of the cancer surgeries as well. All of those were prioritized, um, and so they all went forward. However, I think. We are seeing a bit of a backlog, not not necessarily due to surgical cancellations or delays when it came to transplant surgeries or cancer surgeries, uh, but more as a result of people not getting in to see their physicians or maybe being right. too afraid to come into hospital and and, and not get getting diagnosed, out. right? Not getting diagnosed, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we we've, we have found them coming in at a higher stage and, and higher grade, and that has made the surgeries that they need much more urgent. And so accommodating those surgeries has, has become uh, a challenge. And I think that maybe is where the backlog is perhaps coming from the most. You're getting more urgent cases than you would have if uh, sort of people had been diagnosed more frequently, more regularly, uh, as they had been in the past. Yes, that's right. They, we would have seen more of a steady flow as opposed to perhaps uh, a, a little bit of a delay. And because they are coming in sicker and they need their surgeries more urgently, and, and, and sometimes because they're higher stage or higher grade, the surgery we now have to do is going to be that much more complex. And of course, that you know that, that has added consequences for the patient's recovery, for their time in hospital, which affects the availability of beds for uh, new patients after them, and so there is there is a knock on effect. I do agree. 
Yeah, are you seeing it all through the system? I mean, we know how much we read uh, daily or hear all the time about how much pressure everyone's healthcare systems are under right now, not just Alberta's. Um, are you seeing impacts of that as well when it comes to what you do? I think so. I, there is certainly an element of burnout. We see it with our all of our frontline staff. Um, I think the sheer volume of patients um, that we saw over the pandemic, in addition to all of the patients that were were, were, were sick and, and could not be delayed during the pandemic, probably added to the the stress and the workload for for um, many healthcare workers, whether they're in BC or Alberta or anywhere in Canada, frankly. And I think that relentless pressure has certainly taken a toll. We are seeing folks leaving the profession or at least having to to find alternative work within healthcare that's not as stressful. And and so losing talent or experience like that, um, particularly uh, in the front lines, is, is always a challenge. And it must be tough in your shoes, too, because you're losing people who you have trust in who know what they're doing, right, which is always difficult. It is. Once you've built a team, there's a, you know, I, I read an article recently where the, uh, the it was a first-person piece uh, by a healthcare worker talking about the ballet or the dance um, when it comes to patient care. And it is very much like that when you're in urgent situations. Um, everybody on the team has a has a job and you you can trust that they know what they're doing and things are being taken care of in the background. And um, that's less easy to do with, with new trainees and new individuals. It, it will get there. But, it, you know, it introduces elements of risk um, that, that experience would have not created um, before the pandemic. And I guess there are, no, there are no magic bullets here, right? There are no magic solutions to all this? No, it's a, I think the, the, the trick here when it comes to healthcare is it's, it's complex systems management. You, you touch something over in this part of the web, and it has unintended consequences over here that you could never have predicted. And I think that's that's the the tricky bit for people to, to grasp. It seems like everyone would like a simple solution, or <laughs> if if you know if it makes a good political soundbite, then a simple solution always sounds good. Um, but nobody considers all of the other unintended consequences that come from changes or even shifting resources to to, to one area or another. Uh, and I, I don't envy um, the politicians or the health ministers or, or, or really anyone who has to deal with the administrative uh, management of our healthcare system in any of our provinces in the country at this point. It is a complex organism, the healthcare system, uh, needless to say. Dr. Sidhu, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure.